Hi, I'm Harriet Small. Welcome to Have You Got Five Minutes? PR comms and marketing podcast answering the things you'd normally have asked someone really quickly about at an event or while making a brew in the office. Hello, so this week we're joined by our special guest, David Pembroke. He's a former broadcaster who founded Content Group. He's now the CEO of the Australian Communications Agency. He set up 25 years ago after noticing that government messages weren't cutting through the noise. Today, Content Group is an industry leader specialising in everything from media relations, marketing, public relations and public affairs. Although their clients range from federal government departments and agencies to local government councils, they've had a healthy roster of corporate clients too. For more than two decades, David has been a strategic advisor to Eddie Jones. Yes, that Eddie, the World Cup winning rugby coach who is now with England. David has held high profile communication roles in Australian sport, including the communications director of the Australian rugby team, aka the Wallabies, the Australian Olympic Committee, and was a long time advisor for the Brumbies with brand and communications falling in his remit. Thanks for joining us, David. Thanks, Harriet. Thanks, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. So as the rug geek of the duo, I'm intrigued about your communications roles in rugby. What have you learned from them and has it affected how much you like the sport? You learn a lot from rugby. Going back as a young boy, I actually played the game as a kid. And I think like most people, when you play team sport, it does teach you about others and it teaches you empathy and it teaches you to work as part of a team and it teaches you that you can't always come first. And I think as I grew up through the sport, I think it taught me a lot. I was lucky enough to travel a lot with the game. I learned an enormous amount from uh, playing rugby over the years and then obviously going through to professional roles over time. I've learned a great deal about communications by being involved in elite sport learning a lot about the media, how the media works, how the, you can make the media work for you if you understand how it all comes together. It's been a great association with the game. So I've got to ask about your thought process because many won't know, but you were responsible for a lot of the communications around how England communicated during the Rugby World Cup, especially the semi-final around the New Zealand and that pressure. So what was your thought process when you came up with that narrative? Yeah, that was good. That worked that well. Some weeks it works and some weeks it doesn't, but certainly we we'd sort of put a big circle around that game for a few years and we knew that it was going to be a big game and we were going to have to do something going into that week and that we really couldn't just stop and let it let it sit back so for some time we were I was looking and, and working away and trying to understand the sort of language that the Kiwis were using trying to sort of identify some weak points around their narrative and seeing where we could position ourselves to put some pressure on them and so most of our strategy throughout the uh, the World Cup had been what we called Good Eddie Jones, um, which is where Eddie was very nice to everybody. And because he was Japanese, he would speak in uh, Japanese to the journalists and he was very polite and he was not really the normal Eddie that people are used to. Our strategy was that we knew that if we got to this game and it's part of the plan, it was called Flick the Switch. And we knew that we were going to go from Good Eddie Jones to Bad Eddie Jones. And so we very clearly marked out our territory and we were lucky that we're, it worked for us that week. They opened up some opportunities from a narrative sense and we were able to create a fair bit of disruption. Uh, we were quite simple in what we were trying to do and the messages that we were trying to create around pressure. And um, Eddie has a bit of a superpower when it comes to communication. And so he was able to land those messages very effectively in a press conference and it lit the fuse 
and uh, they couldn't they couldn't stop it and uh, it was just a very powerful momentum leading into the game and then we finished off the the week with the arrowhead um, where we challenged the Harker which was again a, all part of the uh, the theater of the game but also part of the psychology of trying to get into the all blacks heads that um, we were going to turn up and we weren't going to go away until the very last minute of the game and and that's how it turned out the role of communications especially in um, high performance sport has changed so much and it's more than just media relations or speaking to journalists it's everything from brand and creating campaigns around the competition or with sponsors and then how the governing body speaks to its fans how have you seen that relationship change over the sort of two decades or more that you've been in sport well you've just got more opportunities now because there are more channels and there are, are more voices so when i started back in the day social media didn't exist and so all you had was the television the radio and and the print now people are people and people haven't changed so the way that you engage them through through a narrative through interesting language through interesting concepts you've you've got to speak in a way that gets people's attention and that was the same 20 years ago as it is today so it just today it just means that you've got more opportunity there's more channels there's more ability to create video there's more ability to create audio stills text graphics animation so you've got a lot more what i call clubs in your golf bag you know so you can sort of take different shots at different times so it's a, you have much more capability but the pure sense of understanding your audience understanding the sort of messages understanding what they're interested in and then understanding where you fit in inside their world that hasn't changed and i i think you've always got to go back to those basics and go back to understanding your audience and then you build off that you build off those insights and once you've got those insights it's then about trying to find those interesting and new and different ways to keep people engaged but always to make sure that there's a point to what it is that you're trying to say there's no use just going out and creating media for media's sake there has to be a, an intention behind it and whether you're working in business it's a business objective when it's in sport you're looking for that competitive advantage so there always has to be a point about what it is that you're trying to say and linked to that, David, how do you feel that the role of press officers changed in professional sports specifically? So you've got the publicist being quite protective over the public image of players and athletes. And, you know, we were talking just last week, actually, about that media training, almost stopping players sometimes from being themselves or showing personality. How do you feel like it's changed? Yeah, look, I don't think there's much value in that. I think if you've got players who like to engage, that you've got to work with them and you've got to bring their personality as, out as much as you can and work with them and get them to become good communicators. They understand the lines. And the other thing is people want to see personality. They want to see that person. And, and if you can create that human connection, that empathetic connection, well, well, fans like to follow players. And not only great players who can play things, but players with a personality. So I, I think trying to lock things down, it doesn't, it's never worked really. And really what you have to look at, if you've got a squad of 30 players or 35 players, well, that's 35 storytelling assets that you've got and you want to get the most out of them. And then you want to look to your coaching staff. And if you've got another 10 or so people involved in your coaching staff, you want to use them as well. So you want to bring all of your assets to, to the story. But again, you want to make sure that they're working towards whatever that strategic intent is that you, you've got. 
and you want to work to their strengths as well. Some of them are better when they're doing uh, newspaper interviews. Some might be better on TV. Some might be, be, be better at radio. So you've got to play to their strengths as well and build their confidence and, and get them to get out there and tell the story. So if you've got an asset, you might as well use it. And that's what the players are. And some people don't like it. Some players don't like it. And you never really force them to do things. But you really do have to encourage as best as possible. And like over the years, when you're a press officer, there always is that tension between the player and the journalist who's just written the story that the player doesn't like. And the journalist might come to you and say, hey, I want to talk to so-and-so. And you, sort of, you, know, you know when you go and talk to so-and-so, they're going to say, I'm going to talk to him. I to talk to him. He wrote this thing about me last I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. I can't do that. And then you've just got to play the game. And then it's like, oh, yeah, okay, I'll listen to that and all the rest of it. But, you know, like he's got it from a big newspaper, so we actually got to do it. So why don't you? No, nah, I'm not going to do it. No. And then you go back to the journalist and you say, look, he's going to do it. And then you go back and you play the game and ultimately you put them all together and it's all fine. But um, there is often that tension uh, between the athlete and, and the journalist. Again, everyone, I think over time, particularly experienced people, understands do and your job as the press officer is to really to make it happen in sport everything's so finite you know you win lose or draw and there's unrivaled intensity and quite unpredictable and we flip that mindset to a global pandemic working with government communicators then what are your thoughts on communications during the pandemic i guess from an australia and new zealand focus the australian government were had a pretty good pandemic but they're very lucky it's not not a bad thing when you live on an island at the bottom of the world a long way away from everybody else so you can actually shut the borders and stop everybody coming in. But they did do very well, and they were very open and transparent, both in New Zealand and Australia. They published a lot of data. They kept people well-informed, uh, both at a state level and a national level, and certainly in New Zealand as well. Whenever anything sort of arose, they were quick to, to engage. And so they did a pretty good job, particularly through the media. I think from a government point of view, there's still quite a lag between the capability of being able to really use modern social platforms to be able to have that capability of a newsroom to be able to quickly spin up a video, audio, you know, an infographic and really get to that speed that they want to get to. But that's sort of the next phase that government's moving into is making better use of its own channels. I think the lucky thing for a lot of the communicators in Australia and New Zealand is that the the policies were, were quite well set. I know in England it was a nightmare that, you know, for the communicators because they thought that they were telling one particular story and then all of a sudden the policy would change. And it's like, oh, okay. Now everyone was critical of the uh, communicators. Well, you can't be critical of the communicators because they were communicating the policy that they thought, but it's when the policymakers decide to change their mind, well, you're in no man's land. And that's when you do start to erode your credibility and, and trust because people say, well, hang on, you just told me five minutes ago that this is what we're going to do, and now you're telling me something completely different. So that's where you go back to those basic principles of, you know, consistency, authenticity, trust, repetition, you know, being able to, to build that confidence that what you're being told is the real story and you're not chopping and changing. And I, and I think particularly in the UK, there was a lot of that chopping and changing. And I, and I felt for my friends who work in the UK government communication sector because uh, it's pretty hard to sell something like that, that's uh, jumping about the place as it was. What parallels can we draw between the sport and government communications PR machines? They're all in the storytelling business and they all have pretty good stories to tell. The thing about government communications is that, you know, 99.9% .9 of what government tries to do is to do good. Now, you can agree or disagree, but really, you know, the elected representatives, happily, we live in democracies. So if they win at the ballot box, 
works well, they win and they get to implement their policies. And it's the job of the government communicators to bring that story to life and to engage and to explain to citizens and stakeholders just exactly what the government is trying to do. Now, their job is to explain, it's not to advocate. So government communication, it is very much that role of explaining the policy, the program, the service, or the regulation. And there are so many great stories that are locked up in government. You know, I've, I've been doing some work recently with the Federal Department here in Australia of Agriculture, Water, and the Environment. And seriously, some of the most incredible stories are there, but there's not that culture of storytelling and openness that gives people the freedom as yet to get it out. But I think that's changing. And I think the pandemic has certainly accelerated that move to transparency. And so I think we're going to see a, a big movement to, to better storytelling from government, both in Australia and around the world. And the parallels to sport, well, again, you're always looking for that great story, aren't you? When, whenever you're working in a sporting team, you, when you're a press officer, you've always got one ear sort of listening to what they're talking about. Your job is to find those nuggets of gold in the team that are going to be aligned to your story, but are going to bring to life the personality of the player, but also bring meaning to it. So again, it's probably a bit easier in a sporting team to, to bring those to light because there is probably more opportunity and more permission to be able to get those stories up, organised and out into the marketplace. But the job of knowing and understanding and what is a good story, what makes a good story and what is the audience going to be interested in, um, the principles are the same whether you're working in government communication or whether you're working in sport. So we're living in such a time of noise and so much noise, whether that be internally in our organisations when we're at work or whether that be from outside, so social media and the 24-hour news cycle and everything else. And I know you, when you set up your, your company originally, it was about cutting through that noise. So what narratives have you crafted to tell compelling stories to just cut through that sort of noise or techniques? First of all, you've got to have a good story. Again, it goes back to the principles of, of, of a good story, a meaningful story, a story that's going to resonate with the audience who you're seeking to reach, influence and engage. So it's really having that, that understanding. People now control the information, the education, the entertainment they receive, when they receive it, on what device, at what time, on their preferred channel. So essentially what's happened through digital communication is that the power has flipped. You know, it's gone away from the... And when I started, which is where the power was with the people who could distribute the content because they owned the radio stations, the printing presses, the television communications towers. So they had power over distribution and they had power over creation. Well, what digital communication did was democratise those functions and put those into the hands of every government organisation, every person, every brand, every not-for-profit. So everyone is now essentially a media company. So really the principles of identifying, finding a good story, bring it, being able to bring it to, to life, finding the right image, uh, getting the right language, making sure it's interesting, that's key. But I think in this day and age, you have to be, because it is so competitive, you have to be quite narrow um, often in, in who it is that you're targeting. And then you need to keep turning up with relevant, useful, consistent information to be able to make an impression. I think the days of broadcasting are gone. We're now in the narrow casting era. And so you really have to think about, you are now in the media business. So how do you build that relationship and trust with an audience over time? And I think that's what it's about. It's about being consistent. It's about turning up with value. And it's about you know telling an engaging story so that 
specific audience who you're looking to reach, influence and engage takes that content with them because they have the choice of everything now. Everyone's competing with everybody else. So it is very hard, but not impossible. Uh, you just have to keep at it and, and you have to be determined and resilient and uh, make sure that you are telling a good story and make sure that you're evaluating what's working and what's not working. You know, that's the key. You know, data is available for you to be able to understand what is working and what doesn't work. So always use data as much as you can. From a leadership perspective, so leadership has changed dramatically over the last few years. And I think that's only been accelerated by the pandemic. So I work quite a lot in internal communications and leaders now have to be in the front. Everyone wants to see them visible. Everyone wants to see them stepping up. How does communications, especially from an internal perspective, make that partnership work better and sort of support leaders, especially those who are not ready to sort of step up? Yeah, it's a good point. And I totally agree with your thesis there. I do think that we've seen an acceleration and that need for people to get regular information from the leaders to give them the certainty that they want. Because in uncertain times, that's what people are looking for. They're looking for their leadership to be able to create reassurance, to be able to confirm direction, to be able to locate their people inside the story. And that's where leaders really need to have a sense of where they're going, that mission and purpose. They need to have a vision. They need to have some values that they work from. And they need to be consistent in that communication. And they also need to look to their trusted advisors like you, Harriet, who can give them some advice about, you know, what's the lay of the land? How are things working? What are people worried about? We need to address this. The best way we're going to be able to do that is maybe put together presentation. It might be a video. It could be audio. So you've got to try as a trusted advisor, which is really the position that you want to try to be when you're working in these roles. You want to build that confidence and that trust with the leadership so that they do what you tell them to do, basically. And you can be the one that says, hey, this is what we've got to do. I've done all the preparation. I've done the work. You've got a load of things that you've got to worry about, but here's how we can make a contribution this week that will help improve the performance of our team. So point about people who are not ready for it, find a way that they are most comfortable with communication. So it might be that they like to write memos and that's what they're more comfortable. They don't want to stand up in front of a room and expose themselves. So try to work with them and try to understand what is their preferred method of communication and build a bit of confidence with them. And then to be able to say, you know, give them some feedback and then start to perhaps build some of their skills and then slowly but surely bring them on the path to develop their capability over time. But again, that should be your role as their trusted advisor to get them to the point where they are gold standard communicators with a lot of confidence, with a lot of punch, with a lot of energy, with a lot of cut through such that they can really create meaning for people. It was really interesting when you were talking about the flip the switch approach before and the kind of narrative you had for the England team. How did Eddie embrace communications in a strategic way? Because he often speaks from a place of understanding the discipline. Or is that just you've done a really good job? We've been at it since um, he joined uh, the Brumbies back in Australia uh, in 1997. And I remember he turned up as a a very uh, young, impressionable coach from Japan. He was coaching a Japanese university team at the time. And he came to take over the Brumbies and we'd actually been this revelation of a team. You know, we'd we'd had two years where all of a sudden we just exploded onto the scene and we were the just this fantastic story that we were able to tell. And I couldn't believe it. I was like, this guy, why are we bringing this guy from Japan? But he was really, really interested from the get-go of 
how are we doing this? And we'd already worked out how we did it, did it the way we did it. And I said, okay, well, this is what you're going to say. Here's how you're going to say it. And this is the intent. And so we had a process for it. And he picked it up very quickly. But you don't want, you know, this is communication. You don't want people to know that they're getting the story that you want to give them. You want them to, you want it to be there, but you want it to be hidden away amongst all of the other things. And you want to make sure that those little bits of gold are sort of come out there. And as I said, Eddie's got a superpower. He's got that rapier wit. Um, he's got the timing of a comedian. And again, we've been working for 20 years, so we've been at this for a long time. So he can deliver a, a line. I'll hear it and I'll know it and I'll, I'll know exactly when it's coming. But often he disguises it really well. So people don't quite know that, oh, actually, that was the bit that they wanted to, uh, to drop on us. But um, no, he's very skilled. And I think uh, he's done a wonderful job there in England, raising the profile of the sport. And I think whenever he speaks, people go, oh, okay, what's he going to say now? It's not like, oh, you know, there's boring Eddie Jones. He's not going to say anything. It's like, it's more like, oh, it's showtime. What's it, you know, what's coming? <laughs> and look, sometimes he overcooks it. Uh, you know, I'm not sure the rat poison line um, was his best. And often uh, it's, it's interesting around the, the emotion after games. I obviously live here in Australia and I do get up in the middle of the night to watch the England games to send him some notes after the game. Um, but that's the point of time where he's probably at his most vulnerable and his most emotional. And that's when we have our most trouble is immediately after games because of that emotion. Now, when you're there, you can pull someone, to, Rebecca, as you know, you can pull them aside and settle them down before you actually put them in front. Well, I'm a long way away, so I can't really do that. And, and sometimes, you know, that's generally where he'll get himself in, into uh, most trouble. But um, yeah, and again, you've got to keep people guessing as well. You know, we sometimes, you know, some people think, oh, you know, what's he going to say this week? And then we'll say nothing. We might say nothing for a couple of weeks and people think, oh, he's boring. But then it's like, no, no, we're getting ready because we're going to come out with a, in a couple of weeks time with something, which was very much the strategy at the World Cup. And it's generally through Six Nations as well. You want to sort of pick your mark. And also the other thing is you've got to, you've got to be very aware of context. And again, you know, through the Six Nations during this time of COVID, one of the lines that we developed a while ago was, you know, this sense of gratitude and also, you know, trying to put a, the smile on people's faces. You know, that's what we were trying there to do. And that was a, a line that we were looking at. Now, he wasn't smarty pants Eddie Jones. He was like, we've got to understand that, you know, everyone is going through what they're going through. So where do we sit inside that context and where are we going to be most effective? So I think that's another thing that communicators really need to understand and really need to be aware of is where is the story? Where, are, where is that audience? How are they feeling? How are they feeling and what are they looking for from you? And then how do you take advantage of that to be able to communicate effectively? And what's it been like for you growing into a role where what you're communicating or advising reaches people around the world? It's good fun. I love it. It's a hobby. I treat it as a hobby. My wife sort of thinks I'm mad. She's, you know, it's funny that your hobby would be, you know, the highest profile rugby union coach in the world. But yeah, that's what it is. When you have weeks like that, you know, that semi-final week where you've been working for it for a while and you've been planning for it and that context arrives and your plan just works perfectly, every line that we dropped out, you know, we were able to create this sort of snowball pressure on the All Blacks and every day we sort of got them at another angle and another angle and they didn't know which, you know, they didn't know where we were coming from. And then to finish it off with that moment of, you know, let's go at the Harker. There was risk in all of it, but it was calculated risk, but it had massive impact. 
and it had massive impact on the performance and we won the game. It was funny, I was sitting at home in Australia by myself watching the game and, you know, the game finished. I thought, oh, that worked out well. <laughs> and I went to bed. Uh, it's really interesting when you talk about the the longer-term strategy because it can be so transactional in some sports. Um, how do you deal with that scale of decision-making? Like, what would you tell your younger self embarking on that career? Like, What advice have you got? Uh, make lots of mistakes and don't beat yourself up when you make mistakes because sometimes you, 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 know, you will make mistakes. But be strategic. And again, this, this transactional piece, you'll never win and you'll never build a brand and you'll never land a story and you'll never create meaning unless you have a very clear sense of who you are, what you're trying to achieve, and being clear about that with yourself and the people you're working with. You've got to have strategic intent and that sense of get, just getting lost in the moment on a weekly basis and just talking about, oh, so-and-so kicked this here or that happened there or this did that. I've got absolutely zero interest in that. You know, what, what I'm interested in is creating brands and creating impact. And the only way you'll do that is, is if you're quite strategic about it. And that's the interesting part. That's the fun part. That's the bit where you're sort of going, okay, how can I actually make this happen? And how can I create the circumstances? And it's whether it's in Harriet's job in internal communications, it's the same thing. It's about, I want to impact people. I need to get them to do a certain thing. So how can I bring my knowledge, my skills, my behavior and my attitude to that task? of influencing people to generate whether it's change or whether it's a different attitude. And that's the strategic bit. That's the fun bit. And that's the bit that, as you kindly pointed out, I've been doing this for a long time. And uh, I still love it. I, I really, really like it. I'm doing some projects today. It's just great fun. You know, it's like, oh, that's a good story, isn't it? How am I going to, how am I now going to sort of sort that out? And how am I going to bring people together? I think one of the other great gifts of a good communicator is not just because what you don't have, and I think this goes back to the days when I started at the Brumbies, we had no money. We had zero money to, to pay for any sort of advertising or promotion. So the only thing we could do was to influence our third party partners or the media. And so then it was sort of like, okay, this is a bit of a game here. So now I've got to either, I've got to tell good stories and then I've got to try to be nice to this person because I want to push my story down that channel that they've got over there. And then if I do that, maybe that's over there and then I can work with that person. And I think that's the strategic piece of a good communicator is someone who can put together a program where you use that influence. And now in the age where everyone is a publisher, there are channels everywhere that you can use to leverage to get your story out. And I think, again, you've got to take that wider view and then get down into that narrow view and then to be able to build out those plans over time, but always working back towards an objective. And you've talked about making mistakes. So how do you give advice when it's a public failure, particularly today with social media and everything going so viral. How do you support people going through that really big public failure? That's interesting. It's interesting you say that because I remember with Eddie, uh, I think it was back in 2005, he was sacked as the Australian coach. And I remember the day leading up to that and the, then the day of, and what you can do for people, again, it goes back to that trust and that confidence that they have in you. And he was gutted by the, by the decision. But your job as that trusted advisor is to step into the space because, you know, while they may appear, you know, that they've got everything under control, they're humans, they're vulnerable, and they have very public jobs. And these moments are, you know, incredibly distressing for them. 
So your job is to step into that space and to lead. And because you know them so well, it's about bringing them along and, and getting them to the point where they can understand, okay, this is a big time. You've got to get this right. You know, this is going to be, the world's going to be watching. So let's go through it and to give them the time and the space. And that's the other thing I think, again, in those environments when it's quite intense, you've got to make space and you've got to make time. So people will, the media's going, oh, you've got to talk, you've got to talk, you've got to talk. It's like, no, 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 I don't have to do anything. We'll, we'll talk when we're good and ready. So it's don't get pushed, don't get flustered. And particularly if you've got the story, just go, no, no, we'll come to you and we're going to come to you, but we'll come to you when we're ready. And so then having the time, the confidence and the space to then to be able to, to bring them forward, get their confidence, practice, get the lines out, get the sentiment right, get the tone right. And on that particular day, when he left the Australian job, I couldn't have been prouder of him. It was absolutely pitch perfect the way that he left. You know, he just made us all very proud of, of and he's, he's a great character and he's got a lot of integrity, but he really did rise to that opportunity. But that's the way that you do it, that as an advisor, step in and support and then bring them up, give them the confidence, but make sure you've got the time and the space so you can actually um, deliver. And just thinking about being a trusted advisor, because it's one of the things that we we do so well. But on the flip side, I think it was I heard Eddie on a podcast recently where he said he doesn't always listen to advice. And we've both had those experiences, both me and Rebecca and so many other people where people don't listen to your advice, no matter how great it is. But when you're sort of more uh, mature in your career or you've been doing it a while, you're sort of over certain things. You get used to it and you build those relationships. But what advice would you give somebody who's younger or just getting into that sort of position? Don't take it personally. Don't take it personally. That's, that's the key thing. Like if you give your best advice and you've communicated it effectively and you've confirmed with the person that they have understood that you have given them this advice for these reasons. And if they don't take it, move on. Don't worry about it. There's nothing you can do about it. You can't control it. You have, you have acquitted your responsibility as a trusted advisor to give that advice. But ultimately, it's up to them, the people you're advising, to say what they're going to say. So really, yeah, don't take it personally. Just move on and move on to the next thing. Don't sulk. Don't carry on. There's nothing in that for anybody. You know, be professional and move on to the next thing because there's going to be another opportunity to give advice and you'll probably find that if they haven't taken your advice and it goes to custard, well, you know, when they come and see you and you're talking to them next time, is how did that work out for you? Let's go through that again. Okay, what do you reckon we might have done a bit differently there? You know, ask questions of the people who you're advising and they know, they understand. You know, and next time they'll probably take more notice of you because they'll, they'll realise that uh, they don't know everything. You switch from broadcasting, comms and PR, running your own agency and obviously shift between sport and public sector comms. Is that now second nature? And, and what advice would you give to you know, career longevity and, and working across different sectors? Always be interested in people. If you're interested in people, you never run out of things to be interested in You know, because it's infinitely fascinating. So it's always... You know, this project I'm working on at the moment is a big learning development program and it's about changing a culture of learning and development. I'm just like, how interesting is this? And guess what? If we can fix this, this is going to have a dramatic impact. And so that makes you feel good. So again, it's, it's sort of being true to yourself. And it's interesting when you talk about all of those things. You know, I started off 
my 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 business career started as a paper boy in a local hospital years you know that was my first job then i worked for my in my parents hotels and then i worked in marketing and then i've worked and i've just followed my nose from one to the next to the next to the next and every time i've sort of seen something interesting i've gone oh, that looks interesting i think i might go and do that i'm 57 and this year and i'm as energetic today as i was when i was 17 and i'm as pumped for what's coming tomorrow as I was 40 years ago. I Happily, I haven't had one of those careers that exhausts people because I've got mates who have had jobs. They're, they're done. They're cooked. They're finished. They've hated every day of their job and they're retired now and they're celebrating in retirement. And they're like, when are you going to retire? I was like, retirement? No chance. I've got no interest. There's so many interesting things to do. So I think my advice to people is to really, you know, know yourself, be true to yourself. Don't do things for money. So you've got to have money. Like you've got to have, a, you know, a certain amount of money. And, you know, I've done pretty well over the years and all that. But don't make that the sort of the motivation. Try to find that thing that really jazzes you and really gets you going. And in, in communications, it's people. If you're a good communications person, you're generally a good people person because you've got to be, because you've got to understand people to be able to get the story across. And I think as, as a younger person, stay true to that um, and, and stay true to that essence and, and listen to yourself and know yourself and meditate and stay true to your, who you are as you go and, and take the opportunities as they arise. And particularly when you're younger, take some risks as well. I'll never forget um, my dad was a child of the depression and I'd always wanted to be a journalist and a reporter for the ABC, but my, the, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, the equivalent of the BBC here in Australia. And my dad was like, oh my, what are you talking about? You don't want to do that. And I was like, okay, I'll get a degree and then I'll do a, a business job. But I got to the age where I could look after myself and I was like, okay, I've done that. I can do it. I'm safe now. I can always go back to it, but I'm now going to go and be a reporter. And he was like, but you've got this career, you're on the path, you're going to do great things. And I was like, yeah, I know, but that's not what is lighting the fire in me. I want to go and do this other thing. And so I went down all the way back down from this well-paying job with a car and benefits and all the rest of it. I went back to cleaning golf clubs and knocking doors of community radio stations just to get myself in the door because that's what I wanted to do. And I was so fired up. Nothing was going to stop me. I was always going to get to where I got to, but it was certainly in my dad's eyes, it was a risk. I didn't see it as a risk. That was my truth and what I wanted to do. But if you're younger, particularly at you know, the ages that you guys are at, I would be taking risks, you know, thinking about those risks because when you get to my age, you sort of, you've got to be a bit careful about your risk because if you do, if you take too big a risk, you know, you can really, you don't have the time to recover. I do want to live a comfortable retirement. So I'm sort of getting at the age where I'm, I'm not going to go too mad at this stage, but there's, you know, there's a lot of things to do. I'm, I've got three or four things on the go at the moment that um, if, if a couple of them come off, you should ring me back. We could have a real laugh about uh, a couple of others. <laughs> I've, got, I've got a crazy idea and uh, Eddie's involved and uh, stay tuned. Oh, that's amazing. I've heard you talk about this before, and I, I come at this from a selfish point of view. So I work in public sector, I've been in public sector for most of my career. But in any one given week, I can go from being a speech writer, brand consultant, a graphic designer, social media guru, right through to the event 
a manager. And I guess playing that juggling act, what advice do you have for someone like me or other people who do these kind of roles where you have to be almost everything from a well-being perspective, but also a progression perspective where we're told to find our niche and to narrow down on, on what we're good at? It's an interesting time, isn't it? You know, because we've never been at a time where things are moving as quickly and technology is changing and skills are changing and we have to keep continue to adapt. I think you probably, if you've got the capability and the adaptability to be able to pick up all of those skills, you're going to be really valuable in your career. So I wouldn't sort of walk away from any of those opportunities. And I know there's a there's a requirement probably in your job that you are you know, everything, because there's probably not many of you trying to do the work that you've got to do. So, and that can be a bit frustrating when you think, oh, I just never, I can't get that opportunity yet to really follow the path that I think I'm on. But I think where you are at the moment, just keep getting better, a little bit better every day about all of those things. And what will happen is that an opportunity will come. Now, in terms of well-being, I think you've got to be ruthlessly disciplined around your work and it's work-life balance is sort of not really a thing, I don't think. But you've got to be ruthless around your welfare. And you'll find that people will push. And if you let them push, and if you respond to emails at night, or if you respond to an unreasonable request, people will keep pushing until you say no. We've really got to guard ourselves because, again, in a social media world, people, social media managers, you know, people who get just sucked into the vortex of social, you know, it can be really damaging on people. And I've seen it happen a number of times. In the company I work for, I am ruthless about it. My expectation of the people who work for me is that they're fit and ready when they get to work at 8.30 in the morning and I expect them to have a red hot go during the day. They can have lunch and they can take some time. But when they leave at five o'clock in the afternoon or maybe six o'clock at night, that'd be late if it's six o'clock. But that's it. No emails, no expectations, no nothing. Not my time. I'm not paying for it. So I don't own that time. And people need to have a life. They need to build relationships. They need to have family. They need to have their friends. They need to go to the pub. They need to, you know, go out and, and, and recreate because it rejuvenates people coming back. So again, be disciplined around that and really be quite disciplined and just make those expectations known, your expectations known that this is what you're prepared to do. This is the job that you're getting paid to do and this is what you're going to do. Now, if anyone um, doesn't think that's reasonable, well, with the skills you've got, you're not going to run out of options. You've got a million options to, of things to do. I think that's the other great thing for us in communications now, particularly for I get very, very envious of young people like you because I'm like, geez, I'd like to be young now. Imagine how much of it, because there's so much opportunity out there because it's we're finally coming into our own. We're finally coming, you know, for years, you talk about communications, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, the colouring in department, yeah, you guys are great, thanks, fantastic. Yeah, we'll get to you after we do the serious and heavy lifting and the thinking and then, you know, you can help us on the way out. No more, it's finished supercomputers that we carry in our pockets. You know, they've changed the world and they've brought communications and the importance of communications front and centre to every strategy of every brand, every government, every not-for-profit. And so people with our skills are really going to prosper in the time that comes up. So, yeah, it's gonna, you're going to have, 
I'm sure both of you wonderful careers. Last year, you ran GovCom's Festival, a global 24-hour conference about the future of government communications. What did you learn that's changed your thinking? What a great idea that was. That seems like a good idea. Why don't we do that? And the, and the team here, they were looking at me going, you're mad. Like, we're busy. I was like, yeah, yeah, I know. But how, look, it'd be so much fun. Let's just do this. The kicker was when I said to them, and we're going to do it for 24 hours. And they were like, what are you talking about? I was like, yeah, we'll start in Canberra at 10 o'clock in the morning and then we'll go around the world and we'll take people all the way around the world and then we'll come back and we'll finish 24 hours later. Um, what did I learn? I learned that the world is a very, very small place. The problems that I have and you have are the same problems. We all have exactly the same problems. Different languages, probably some different resourcing, but by and large, the same problems. If you work in government in Australia, you're going to be dealing the same problems that Harriet's got at Hackney, you're going to have at the local council in North Sydney. You'd be able to, and it'd be, you, you could probably swap the people over and they'd have exactly the same problems. And the challenge is that you've got Rebecca as running a consultancy are the same problems that I've got here running a consultancy in Canberra. So the world's small. We've all got the same problems and the world is a very generous place because what we did with GovCom's festival was to say, hey, this is an idea. It's just an idea. Put it out on LinkedIn, put out a bit of promotion and said, listen, if you're interested, let us know. And whatever you want to talk about, that's fine by us. Just let us know and we'll organise it. And so we ended up with 22 countries, 170 speakers and about 200 hours worth of content played on like three or four live virtual stages. It was unbelievable. You know, we had everyone from Accenture to Salesforce. So we had all the big dogs. And then we had all these sort of smaller people who gave their bits and pieces as well. It's absolutely incredible. So that was the GovCom's festival. We're going to do it again this year. And I'd like a contribution from both of you. The other thing that we've done off is launch a thing called the GovCom's Institute. The insight around that is around capability. And that goes to the point I was raised there just a minute ago with Harriet, is that the skills that we need to be effective communicators in a technology-enabled, digital-rich, data-rich world are different to the skills that we had. And they're continuing to change and they will continue to change. So there is this evolving need for capability and skills. And the other thing that inside communications that's happening is that central comms areas, particularly in government, they're just not keeping up. They can't keep up. There's just so much communication that needs to be done that the capability and the need for communication skills is being distributed to the edges of organisations. So in policy areas, in program areas, in service delivery areas, they all need the same skills. And so the GovComs Institute is going to be all about identifying that common capability need and gap, and we'll train people. And we're going to create a Platform and we're going to allow people from all over the world to provide their education um, to people around whatever it is that they decide that they'd like to train. So that's the other thing. The other thing is have a dig, right? If you have an idea, have a dig. That, that is another piece of advice I'd give to people. Don't let it die. Don't let it sit in your head and think, oh, oh yeah, but someone might think this or oh, it won't work or blah, blah, whatever. Don't, Get that garbage out of your head, have an idea and have a crap. I tell you, I, that's another thing I've learned over the last couple of years is just have the courage to step into your 
greatness and your genius and see how it goes. And guess what? If it doesn't work, oh, well, didn't work. But you know what? You learn something. And so if you've learned something, well, that's not a bad thing. So I think you're right. There is a skills gap. So do you think there is a bit of a challenge there with public sector and then corporates can come along and kind of glean, glean talent off people? I think your generation are far more enlightened than my generation in lots of ways. I think there's a lot more intent and purpose in younger people today and they want to make a difference like my team here they're all about you know same age as you guys and like our mission at content group is to help government strengthen communities and improve the well-being of citizens through effective communication the key word there being help so they know when they come to work that's what they're doing they're as good as anybody i don't think there is if the gap is there i don't think it's it's not a big gap and you know purpose is important it gives you that motivation because it, you do good work i remember years ago um i worked in marketing for minnesota mining and manufacture 3m and i used to sell as the marketing guy video cassettes and audio cassettes that was my job and i actually quite liked video cassettes and audio cassettes because it was you know about bringing stories to life but the guy sitting next to me he used to his job was to market pot scourers and i used to look at him and think pot scourers wow how do you get up every day and say, I can't wait to get out there and sell as many pot scourers as I possibly can because I'm jazzed about pot scourers. So that's the thing. In, if you're in government, you can get worked up about it because generally you're there to try to make things better for people. There's that attendant benefit that you get through working in the public sector. And the UK Government Communication Service, I'll give them another plug. They are absolutely world class. They're the best government communication service in the world led by my dear friend Alex Aiken and they set new standards all the time and he is curious he is generous and I think if you've got an opportunity to go and work in the government communication service if you worked in communications in the UK you know you get to work on big things you know, you know and important projects as well and particularly going through what we're all going to go through now as we all come out of the back of COVID it's going to require government to be really clever in its storytelling, you know, I'm going to be really interested to watch the UK, you know, as you're dealing with Brexit, as you're dealing with post-COVID, as you're going out into the world alone by yourselves now, how are you going to tell that story in such a way that you're going to capture people's imagination? How's that British spirit going to come to life and how are you going to animate that with stories? We're going to get you a Rugby World Cup in a couple of years, so that might help. What do you see for the future of government communications as we build back post-COVID? It's central. It's storytelling. Because you have got to shape a story. And so there's got to be somewhere a strategic narrative that someone is piecing together and it's got to all come together. And particularly from a government point of view, it's all got to sort of line up. It's all got to be consistent. And then you've got to find on a daily basis, where are the examples? Where are the people? Where are the case studies? And then you've got to get those stories out into the right places. And then you've got to tell the story over and over again. And you've got to be interesting. You've got to be engaging. And you've got to move people to action. But you do that with intent. You do that with strategy. And you do that with by having a very, very, very clear sense of who you are, what you're trying to achieve, what those objectives are, and knowing more about the audience than you know about yourself, digging into them as much as you possibly can, then making some choices about what's the stories we're going to tell, what's the content channel we're going to use, what's the content type we're going to use. You're in the media business, so that's the thing. And making sure that you're making good use of the data that you're generating from publishing your content so you get a little bit better at it and you're making good use of technology and automation artificial intelligence, 5G technologies, augmented reality, all of these fun things that are coming. I'll be in my dotage when it all comes on, but you'll be right in the middle of it. I feel you'll be at the centre of it, David. Thank you so much for doing this. 
No problem at all. Thank you very much for taking the interest and, and reaching out and um, make sure you dream big. Okay. Thanks for joining us and everything we've mentioned will be in the show notes. We're here to answer the questions you need answers to and talk about the PR, communications and marketing topics you care about because we've got five minutes. You can DM us or contact myself, Harriet, at comdoveracoffee.com and Rebecca at threadandfable.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate, review and subscribe so others can find us. Find us on Twitter at Rebecca7Roberts and at Harriet Smallsey.